0: Well, get your chewing gum ready, because we'll definitely take that as a tip. This is Film Shake, the 90s movies podcast. And yes, we are recording this podcast on our Talk Boy tape recorders. Right, Nick? I know I keep mine around for things like this.
1: (laughs) Yes, Jordan. This is Nick.
0: You never know. You never know when you'll need it to impersonate your dad and trick the hotel staff.
1: Right. At the most opportune moment, you will need it and have it. With exactly the dialogue you need recorded upon it.
0: That's right. You also need your VHS of uh, angels with dirtier faces. (laughs) But yes, I'm Jordan. And this is Nick. And this is episode 55. We're covering Home Alone 2, Lost in New York from 1992. That's right, we're the 90s movies podcast, covering everything from the terrible to the awesome, the good, the bad, the not so good somewhat in between all those things 90s 90s
1: dog j that's dog. Why you're here. jc the yes. big man N-
0: nl nl just doesn't sound quite as as it doesn't roll off the tongue as much as jc i guess
1: it really doesn't you know it works with baseball like national league and that that's about it that's uh, about it and my sister was al america how many league. friends
0: call you nl
1: uh none of them thank god okay <laughs>
0: Yeah, because I've heard, you know, J.C. J.C. is the thing for sure. But yeah,
1: it is. That's right. Hey, so you know what, buddy? I have What's to up? make an announcement, a show announcement, a riveting announcement that shakes me to my very core. Jordan, you won the last trivia battle. I did not win. We just both assumed after I got a question right <laughs> Nick always wins he must have just won but Jordan, I went back and listened and at first I was like, oh wait, did we actually tie then I listened again and realized no Jordan won. Jordan answered two <laughs> questions right when I had only answered one right and missed one. Jordan won now his questions were yes. stupid they were they were really <laughs> dumb pitiful excuses for questions, but you know what
0: hey I hey. missed, I missed one worked of hard those. on those questions, buddy that's right. <laughs> You're just mad because you lost in the end. And I'm super excited because, yes, I, I shook you to your core. I could say I film shook you to your core. Oh. Uh-huh. Um But, yeah, I, was, I lose so often that I was just immediately convinced that you want me. It's like <laughs> I'm so bad at this. Even when I win, I lose. I don't know how that works. But, yeah, you tricked <laughs> me. It's all your fault. You know, thankfully, I started watching Home Alone 3 from 1997, which was my punishment. But before completing it, he texted me and told me, Hey, I I re listened to the episode. You actually won. So I stopped dead in my tracks. I was like, Oh no, I'm not watching any more of this garbage. Or, you know, I I was actually having a little bit of fun with it, but ran out of time. Either way, I was like, Okay, I owe it to myself not to have to watch anything that's considered a punishment. I'm just watching Home Alone 2. And you, like you normally do, your masochistic self, you're just going to watch it anyway. And somehow you stopped yourself from watching all the other like what six incantations of home alone but you did watch number three
1: right and i'll get into how i was able to have some self-control and not be a a complete nihilist there mainly because i was writing a gigantic monologue which i'll read later about nihilism and home alone too but jordan
0: (laughs) i'm so excited about this (laughs)
1: i'm glad jordan i don't know if you remember this But there was this band that basically just soundtracked the TV series Grey's Anatomy back when it was still in like single digit seasons. I think they're in like season 50 of that show because I'm pretty sure it still comes on and it's like her great, 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 great granddaughter by this point.
0: (laughs) Yeah, pretty sure.
1: Right. There was this band called The Fray and they have this hit song called How to Save a Life. And yeah, yeah. Jordan, I don't know if you ever actually listened to the lyrics, because you know it's like, meh, 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 and it's soundtrack in Grey's Anatomy, and you think it's just like generic love lyrics. It's actually about how someone stopped their friend from watching
0: Home Alone 3, Jordan, and that's oh, what wow. I did for you. Th- that's what the song is actually about? It is, Jordan. I feel like you've definitely got to throw that song in the show right here, right now, as we get into Home Alone 3.
1: Well, if I did that, it would prove that I'm lying, so I definitely won't do oh. that.
0: Oh, no. How can you lie to me like that? How can you just build up my dreams, all my hopes and dreams?
1: Hey, look, I let you not watch Home Alone 3. I could have just kept that tidbit in that you actually won and made you watch it. But I love you, my friend, and I would not do that to you because Home Alone 3 is so damn bad. Holy cow. I hate Home Alone 3. Oh, wow. I hate it. I hate this movie. I have to tell you something else on a, hey, Jordan was right, or this is a good detail about Jordan Courtney. You know, I, I love Roger Ebert mostly because of nostalgia because I enjoyed he and Gene Siskel arguing on their TV show, but you've always been a bit more skeptical about Ebert, and I've given you a yeah. hard time about that every now and then. Hear I me mean, out, Jordan. Don't defend yourself here on, okay, on okay. that because you have been. You've said some things like sometimes it seems like he doesn't actually watch the movie every now and then. He said stuff where yeah. the plot's completely wrong. Jordan.
0: Right, this is true.
1: This is what Roger Ebert said about Home Alone 3. I find it to be fresh, very funny, and better than the first two. Whoa. Jordan, 1990's Home Alone, which will one day cover in its own episode, it's like...
0: <laughs> yeah. Somehow we're covering number two. That's how we before do it. Before we've covered number one, yeah. That's how we do it.
1: It has to be done that way. That's a near-perfect movie, if not a perfect movie. The first Home Alone. The concept, everything about it is very original. It's like perfectly executed. One of the greatest film scores of any holiday movie ever, if not the best. Roger Ebert said that this movie, Home Alone 3, directed by Raja Gosnell, starring... <laughs> alex d lens as alex pruitt an eight-year-old boy he says this movie is better than that
0: jordan i mean it does have a a mutator remote controlled truck it's got that going for it i mean i had a remote controlled truck I'm, i don't know if the mutator was a real thing but that looked like what 10 year old jordan would want back in 97 uh...
1: Yeah, so 10-year-old Jordan watching this. Okay, so I'm at the point when this movie comes out where I am a sophomore in high school. This was the same week that Titanic came out. But anyway, I'm playing high school sports. I'm playing varsity basketball. I'm uh, talking to the ladies. And Jordan, I don't give a damn about 8-year-old Alex Pruitt. (laughs) I don't care about that. With his
0: chicken pox? Or his chicken spots, as they say.
1: Right. I mean... Home Alone 2, which we're going to talk about later, which is my pick. You know, that came out when I was 11.
0: Yeah, you're the prime age, sort of.
1: Right. So I'm watching, I'm seeing stuff for Home Alone 3, and I'm thinking, like, I'm too old for this. This is for a new right. a new group of people. And, Jordan, I think if you had watched this whole movie, you would have been like, I used to, like, have this running gag where I'd say, you damn millennial. But, Jordan, you and I, <laughs> you found that MTV generation thing. You're an old soul anyway, right? And we're both cranky old men deep down
0: on the inside. Right. Jordan, I've been listening to Bob Dylan nonstop for the last, like, two weeks. So Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you just
1: listen to damn, like, 70s hippie music all the time, Jordan. Right. You're, you're, you're an old man. So I'm listening. I'm watching this movie, and I'm thinking, like, this is for the next generation. These are for these little brat kids that are going to grow up on social media. No offense to all our listeners who are in that group. I love all of you. I love all of you. Especially shout out to the Isle of Jersey in the channel island i don't know why we have so many listeners there that doesn't make any sense to me you're like our number one listening spot like ahead of (laughs) badon rouge which is where we're from and most of our family and friends live so thanks isle of jersey
0: That's just one guy in his basement like like watching all these movies on a loop yeah
1: (laughs) i need to listen to this film chick episode for the 10th time
0: right right thank you jersey
1: you notice how I'm rambling, so I don't actually have to talk about Home Alone yeah. 3. Jordan, it's yeah. bad. You watch the beginning. You know, like, those other two movies have classic John Williams scores. There's a point in, like, an airport in this movie where the music just goes to, like, that, like, awful, like, this is a bad kid's movie tone. And just yeah. doesn't even try anymore to <laughs> ape John Williams. And... Everything it just makes me sad. Like, there's a parrot, and I hate the parrot, right? But the parrot's <laughs> real, he's alive. And this movie made me hate a living creature that's innocent and was forced to do these things. Like I feel was bad. It the
0: same parrot from Polly.
1: I don't, I'd rather watch Polly than this. Honestly. <laughs> oh no. And then, oh, no. and then rat. I love rats, Jordan. I, I I think rats are beautiful creatures. I think they may be smarter than humans. There's definitely a chance. I think crows are definitely smarter than humans, and I think rats yes. are up there. They might be smarter. We've
0: docu- We've well documented your love for crows.
1: Right. 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 Like a. Uh, I mean, what are rats but land crows? Yeah. They're like crows without wings. You've got those sidekick animals in this movie, and it still can't save it. It just sucks. It's The plot is too complicated. They drop the, hey, this family left this kid alone, and they're far away, and now on, at nighttime... And this beautifully lit film that just reminds you of Christmas and the holidays and just everything beautiful about that. Instead, this movie is just going to be slate gray. The color scheme for this is slate gray. His family will just be down the street and... Everything will just be dull. The break-in will be at daylight. They're like, last hour of the film is the break-in scene with the traps. The traps aren't good. I don't think they're very creatively done. There's this really convoluted plot about how somehow Alex Pruitt, an eight-year-old boy, comes across this government chip that's like a... I don't know, Control some weapon system. Yeah, inside there's a remote control car he gets. So he, like this terrorist team, it's like an international terrorist team, comes to fight against him.
0: They take up a base in like one of the neighborhood houses like across the street. And they're like, we're going to do it in the middle of the day because this is the suburbs. Nobody's home in the suburbs.
1: The only clever line in the entire film was that no one is home during the day in the suburbs. and that's
0: when I liked it.
1: Because they had to justify it. Maybe they just couldn't afford to like light the set to where it looked like it was nighttime. I <laughs> right. don't know, man.
0: They're like, oh yeah, we're shooting this on video, like we've got to do this during the day. But it made me think about we're talking a little bit about how surprisingly Scarlett Johansson is in this movie. We were actually texting about I think you sent me like a gif or something of Scarlett Johansson, or I sent you a gif of her, and we got off onto the movie Ghost World. And I was jokingly saying, oh, yeah, she's, you know, she's in Home Alone 3, too. Like, she's in both of these movies. And and I was just joking. But then you're like, wait, she really is in both of these movies. I was like, are you serious? And uh, they're both set in the suburbs. Or I guess you could say uh, you said you had, like, a theory that she's the same character (laughs) in Ghost World that she is in Home Alone 3. So I don't know. They're both about this suburban ennui, maybe. You know, you could just tie those two things together and have a little double feature. Because they're obviously of the same caliber, same caliber quality for for sure.
1: They're not. They're not at all. Ghost World is over 1 trillion times better than this movie. And the crazy thing is making me want
0: to watch the whole thing, man.
1: (laughs) All right, go ahead. Go ahead. I don't know why. See if I care. (laughs) (laughs) See if I care, JC. Just have at it.
0: It's got the remote control car. It's got the suburbs, you know. You got the kids, the chicken pox, and his parrot and his rat. Like I don't know what else you want, Nick. So terrorist team that he has to fight against. It's just a bad 1997 kids movie, but like something about that still kind of appeals to me.
1: What that you should have watched this then. Damn it! Now <laughs> I regret telling you the truth. I should have let All you. Right, I'm gonna that you watch
0: lost. it and then we'll just re-record this part of the podcast.
1: Sounds good. Sounds like a plan. Okay. Just in case we don't, I should mention <laughs> I don't want to throw shade at Alex D. Linz. Because Alex D. Linz has done more in his life, which began almost a decade after mine, than I'll ever do. Like for my entire life, for the rest of my life. Unless somehow my path changes drastically. But all that to say, like very obviously, like about 15 minutes into this film, after Scarlett Johansson has like, I don't know, two or three scenes. And she's young here. I mean, this is 97, so she's like 12 or 13. But immediately you're like, man... She probably should have been the lead. <laughs> yeah, she probably like you can tell very obviously that she has like more screen presence than poor Alex. Who they just make like, they have all these shots where they just have him break the fourth wall and make like cute faces, and you can tell they're mm-hmm. trying to recapture lightning in a bottle there. But no one's Macaulay yeah. Culkin. Man, he was yeah. he's like the best child actor of all time. He just he was perfect and in those home alone movies like he just had Charlie that Korsman, have
0: something to say about that
1: oh great all right well then let's finish this up uh <laughs> home alone three sucks i give it a two out of ten i don't even know why i'm giving it a two just out of the, the christmas spirit the generosity the of my spirit. heart
0: the generosity of...
1: right a two out of ten for me i hate it screw this movie do you have anything else to say about it jordan
0: i think you should give it a, a three out of ten because it's home alone three that would be more generous of you
1: all right here's the deal
0: No. Based on that logic, you'd have to give Home Alone 2 a 2 out of 10.
1: Yeah. And I'm not giving it a 2 out of 10. (laughs) So forget this. Let's actually talk about Home Alone 2.
0: To New York,
1: yes, lost in New York. I'm glad they added that in there, just in case you were thinking, like, uh, is he still in Chicago? No,
0: is he still at home? Like, the original working title was Alone Again because he's not really home in this one. But to me, Home Alone, the words Home Alone have become basically like a brand unto itself, like, those words don't really mean what those words actually mean to me anymore, if if you know what I mean. Like, all they do, if I hear Home Alone, it's going to conjure images of cute little blonde Macaulay Culkin throwing bricks at Daniel Stern, you know?
1: I'm already sensing that you and I have very different Home Alone experiences in general. For me, I was nine when the original came out, and that was the first movie that I made all of my family go to see. I saw the commercials, and I thought, this looks pretty good. So my family went to go see it, and everyone was laughing their heads off. We were laughing so hard at the first Home Alone, and everyone enjoyed it so much and was over. I was like, hey, you know what? Nine-year-old Nick has pretty good movie taste. Go (laughs) nine-year-old Nick.
0: Go nine-year-old Nick. That's when you became a true cinephile.
1: Yep. That's when it was proven that I'm always right, Jordan. Yeah. Do you have any experience like that, or is it just like there for you?
0: I mean, it's, it's just there. It's prevalent all throughout my childhood obviously I was you know a good bit younger in 1990 than you you know as a young child but i remember it i don't know exactly when i saw the movie but just watching it at home with family seeing it on tv all the time kind of a christmas staple or just like on during that season loved it just kind of ubiquitous and that's kind of how that's why i mean like the words themselves home alone and just it just feels so pervasive as just this kind of cultural supernova of a thing that it's just beyond what it actually is. Like it just, I don't know. It's just like a pop culture icon in a way, in my mind that, I mean, that's just how big this movie was and just how pervasive it was in the nineties and Macaulay Culkin and, and everything about it. That way they can name the second movie home alone Two. And he's not actually home alone. But, I mean, it totally makes sense for marketing reasons and just this thing as a brand in itself because the first movie was so huge.
1: Right. It was huge. I loved it. So whenever they announced the sequel, I was really excited, very excited. This was November 20th, 1992. So I was in the fifth grade and I was super psyched. I wanted to go see it opening weekend. But the thing is... I had a dentist appointment, so we were going to go to the dentist, Jordan, and then go to Home Alone too. Well, this is what happens. We used to freeze candy back then, and we froze some Charleston shoes, Jordan. You remember Charleston shoes?
0: Oh, I know where this is going.
1: So we're on the way there, and longtime listeners might know that my S's are very, very piercing. It's like my S's are a sword that stabs your ears. Well, the reason for that is... On the way from the dentist to Home Alone 2, I pulled out the bag of Charleston shoes and took a big old bite and chipped my front tooth. And to this day, 30 years later now, Jordan, 30 years later, as of two days ago, that chip is still there. Like Jim Carrey, same tooth, same chip on the way to Home Alone 2. So we go to the movie and, you know, we all enjoy it a lot. It's a lot of fun. I mean, I'm 11. I'm not like dissecting like, oh, you know, having all the same beats as the first movie, movie—it's maybe shows a lack of creativity. I'm not thinking that. I'm like, I want these beats. I right. wanted to hit the same beats as the first movie and do it bigger. And that's what it does. It hit all the beats and it did it bigger. So I was psyched. But then Joe, my cousin Joe, who I've talked about before, you know, he'd go see the radar R movie and I could never go with him because I would tell my mom that I went afterward and then I would get Joe in trouble. But... Joe wanted to go see Home Alone 2, so I went with he and his mom, my Aunt Pat. And my Aunt Pat used to bring this gigantic, huge, like, tote bag purse to the movies, and she would bring TV trays, she would bring (laughs) a two-liter Coke, and she would bring plastic Solo cups. So in the middle of the movie, she's giving us our trays and our Solo cups and pouring (laughs) Coke into them from a two-liter.
0: That's Um, awesome.
1: But, you know, watching the movie again... I didn't enjoy When it you this said T
0: V trays, I was I was imagining like a TV dinner tray. Like she had a TV dinner in her bag and she was just busting it out like a fork and knife. That's not what was happening.
1: No, we weren't eating hungry man.
0: I wish it was. Here's your Salisbury steak and your Coca-Cola.
1: So we're watching the movie. And I'm thinking, like, I'm not enjoying this as much as the first time. Like, now I know what happens. I know what the traps are going to be. Like, I'm still enjoying it, but not as much as the first time. And then it happened, Jordan. The Christmas break of 1992. That changed everything. That changed my whole world happened. I go to Metairie, Louisiana. And I go to New Orleans. To see my cousin act in a play in City Park in New Orleans, Jordan. It's all lit up for Christmas. It's beautiful. I go there. It's a cold night.
0: Was it like the pageant in Home Alone 2?
1: No, it wasn't. It was outdoors. Uh, Nothing zany or wacky happened. No one fell down. It was beautiful. And then I rode with my dad to Grand Isle, Louisiana, on the coast. And I went fishing with my dad for three or four days. And I told the story before in the Batman Returns episode. So I won't tell that story again. I'll just say... I got bronchitis. Horrible bronchitis. I got bronchitis, which you just had, Jordan. Now you know you just had the bronchitis. You're still hacking away.
0: Had the bron? Oh, have the bronchitis. Watch the Home Alone two, and yeah, I can can feel the synergy here. Right, connecting with your 92 year old self.
1: Yes, my 1990,
0: your (laughs) your 1992 self. I should say.
1: I was born in 1900, Jordan.
0: Right. We all know you're an old
1: man, but not that old. Not that old. So we get back. My mom takes my temperature. It's 103. We get to the doctor. My temperature is 104. I'm like out of my mind. I'm like hallucinating. Like I I don't know if I got up to 105, but my temperature was like skyrocketing where it was like a big deal.
0: That's the best time to watch Home Alone 2. (laughs) Let me tell you.
1: Well, I didn't watch Home Alone 2 at at that point. Again, for the third time. Not yet. Mm -hmm. We went back home. And, I mean, I was just out of it. Like, I kept a high fever for so long, and it was bad. I was just basically, like, in and out of, like, consciousness and weird states of existence.
0: and (laughs) Different planes.
1: Right, different planes of existence. And that made up a strange period for me, and I've talked about this before. I watched a set of movies repeatedly during this time where I'm, like, not really, like, all there uh, one of them was Batman Returns. That was a big one. Watched that two or yeah. three times. Another was Hook because my cousin Adrian, his whole family came and they stayed with us for a week. And I'm like a dead person. I was in my bed most of the time. I basically just came out to watch movies and Adrian and I were both pretty active and we used to get, we used to get in like raging fights back then too. Like I I can't remember we got in one last fight where we loved each other and we didn't want to hurt each other anymore because we still like bust each other's noses and like have nosebleeds everywhere all the time. And Adrian is my best friend, but we didn't want to do that anymore. So we got in a fight and he punched me in the chest and I slapped him in the face. I went to punch him in the face and then I opened my hand and just slapped him. And then we both cried and ran into opposite rooms and then made up. But anyway.
0: And then watched Batman Return.
1: Right. So he came over and they brought Hook. And then we watched Hook two or three times. And all the kids besides me are like flying around on the couch just pretending they're Peter (laughs) Pan. Right. Right. With the awesome John Williams music
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, And I'm just like a corpse. I'm like a dead person. Oh, and also Batman the Animated Series premiered Mm -hmm. right before that. Like it had just premiered late that year. So also I watched.
0: Kevin Conroy.
1: Right, RIP Kevin Conroy. Thanks for reminding me, man. Yeah, man. So his voice was in my head a lot then, because they premiered the first 30 episodes, and I watched those two pretty much on a loop there. It was syndicated on Fox. So I was watching that, too. So it was a lot of Batman. It was a lot of Hook. Man, great soundtracks I was listening to. But yeah. Christmas for me, I'm just going to ramble this whole episode, Jordan. So I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm going wrap
0: it up here. <laughs> You're
1: yeah, right. We're three hours in already, and we haven't even talked about yeah. the movie. Christmas for me has always been kind of terrifying. Like I, I had this nightmare when I was a small kid that I was in this Christmas village with my family, and then all and it was late at night, and all of a sudden they vanished, and everyone vanished, and I was like stuck in this Christmas village that was all weird and magical, but no one was there, and I couldn't get out of it. It was like a recurring like Christmas nightmare that I had, and that's like stuck in my brain that that's what Christmas is.
0: This is what Christmas is.
1: Right. And then there was this old claymation nutcracker that I also had nightmares about where I would be yeah, falling freaky, man. and I would just fall eternally and I couldn't get out of it. So I already have like weird Christmas vibes, but then like having a 104 fever and being like in and out of consciousness during Christmas. I don't know. I kind of wonder if that's why like most of the <laughs> bad depressive periods in my life have been around Christmas time. And that was like the infancy of it.
0: Well, They talk about the winter blues kind of stuff too. Yeah. So that's not too atypical.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know what, Suicides and, and bad depression uh, seem to kind of center around the holidays, which is a bummer. But that period of time you know, near the end of it, I finally got to where I could go out, Jordan, and I could finally leave the house. And what does everyone want to do? They want to go see Home Alone 2 again, Jordan. Again. Oh, wow. again. So we go to see Home Alone 2, which I've already seen twice. And the third time I was like saying the lines under my breath because I had already seen it twice and like Making the sound effects under my breath, because I'd already seen it twice. And Boy. really, like, kind of feeling disillusioned, seeing, like, the strings at, behind Hollywood. Like, this is how we'll make money. Let's just make the first movie again, and we'll nah. just make it bigger. And it we'll make got it you bigger. Depressed. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, it did. It, that got me depressed, it made it too. even
0: bigger in, in 3, right? Like, <laughs> just ginormous by this point.
1: Right, I mean, it's it's new. It's you go from a little suburban neighborhood, where a lot of rich people live. Don't get me wrong, in Chicago, and now you're in the biggest city in the world. So it's a big change. But you know what, Jordan? Huh? This movie will forever be ingrained in my mind from that period. It's the Christmas Star by John Williams from this has like haunted my entire life since then for the last thirty years since this movie haunted came out. In a good way. Uh, but maybe I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> So Just I thought neutral. we've already covered Hook and Batman Returns, and most of our listeners have probably turned the show off by this point, or at least fast-forwarded to this point to get to the end of me talking about this. But I figure, you know what we we should close the loop. It's the 30th anniversary. Let's close the loop, and maybe I can get out of my Christmas village, Jordan.
0: Close the loop, no pun intended.
1: No pun intended. <laughs> So yes, Jordan, Chris Columbus comes back from Home Alone 1, directs Home Alone 2, John Hughes writes again, John Hughes produces again, Macaulay Culkin's back, Joe Pesci, Daniel Stern, John Hurd, Catherine O'Hara, they're all back. Jordan, what do you think about Home Alone 2?
0: Home Alone 2, I was really surprised re-watching this. Like I said, I am a fan of the first one, and I think I was just, in my mind, Home Alone in general is just an hour and a half of a child- torturing to adults with booby traps. But I was surprised at how kind of sweet and charming and sentimental this movie is. And I know it repeats a lot of the beats of the first one, but it's kind of like low key in some ways by today's standards. There's kind of this sweetness that I think that comes through In the way it's filmed, there's actually some really beautiful photography in this movie of New York and the skyline and the sunset and all that. It just has this kind of wintry coziness that good Christmas movies give you, and I think that the first movie gives that to you as well, and yeah, it it rehashes a lot of those beats and it just expands on it like sequels do, just makes it bigger. I know a lot of people love the first one, not so much this one, but... I don't know, I, I really... I just found it kind of, like, cozy and, and warm, and overall, it's not lacking heart. I mean, I I guess some people would say it's, like, too sentimental or smalt, smaltzy and over-the-top at times, but that's kind of just a part of that coziness that I would look for in a nostalgic rewatch of something like this, you know? So, yeah, I was, I was really surprised by the sweetness, but also you know mixing that sweetness with of course the kind of cartoon and sometimes not cartoon very like oh my gosh this is a psychopathic kid like filled with violent schemes you know just the two of those things mixed together is really strange when you kind of take a step back and look at this You know, and try to look at it objectively in a way where, like, it's really, like, sentimental and trying to go for, like, the Christmas feels. But then you you also have, like, this kid just, like, torturing these two crooks, you know, and, like, (laughs) sending these probably just, like, not all there, not, like, highly intelligent to adults through, like, a torture ring. And looking at this from the adult's perspective... Now having four children of my own, I can say I'm much less sympathetic with the child. In those respects, like, dude, why didn't you just call the cops? Like, you're a psychopath. Like, you had to bring them through, like, all these booby traps. Like, as a kid, all that's, like, super fun and cool. But, like, after stepping on what feels like planned torture by my kids, like, stepping on their Legos or, like seeing them throw rice all over the dining room or something or it's just like yeah i i feel tortured every day like cleaning up mess after mess you know (laughs) so like i'm much less sympathetic well wow well jordan
1: i appreciated all the nice things that you just said about this movie because i did rewatch it about five years ago with my son and i enjoyed it a lot then and a lot of the things that you just said i really enjoyed and a lot of the cynicism that i had back when i was 11 the second and third times i watched this i kind of felt fall away and then i watched it a couple times uh, you know in this past week to cover this movie for the episode and i enjoyed it a lot then i enjoyed it a whole lot i don't think it's like a, a perfect movie or even necessarily a great movie but i do think right. this is a really enjoyable christmas movie for sure. Yeah.
0: I feel like we should talk a little bit about Macaulay Culkin in just his career, you know, his status at this point in ninety two. And I was looking into just curious like what his salary was, like is this child actor and the I guess the advanced like growth of his career from the first one being like this huge hit. He got paid $100,000 in 90 for Home Alone. Before that, he was in Uncle Buck in 89, a uh, smaller part, 40000 By the time he is in Home Alone 2 and his father, who was like his agent, agrees to have him come back on for this second movie, also worked into that deal that he would be in the movie The Good Son, you know rated r thriller where he'd play an edgier character didn't want his kid to be typecast he worked that into the deal he's getting paid 4.5 million dollars for home alone 2 i think at the time like one of the highest paid kid actors ever at that moment so yeah he's just a huge star at this point to where when they filmed the airport scenes they had so much trouble with Just his notoriety, like the security, like everybody just knows who Macaulay Culkin is. And he's like, what, 10-year-old, 11-year-old kid at this point. That's just got to be completely insane for somebody that age. And then making this much money and just being this famous.
1: Right. It's a weird world for him. And then he quit acting. It was so weird. And I, I think his parents maybe, I think there was some issues there where I guess they were trying to take advantage of him or he just felt like he was being used. I'm not Mm. entirely sure, but he quit. He said, forget this. I'm out.
0: Yeah. Quit in 94. And so by 94, he's making $8 million for Richie rich, which I totally forgot he was in. I remember that movie. Well, but for some reason I don't place Macaulay Culkin in my head for that, but yeah, like he's making, and I don't think any of these numbers are adjusted for inflation. But yeah, he's just like insanely wealthy at this point. But yeah, as a young kid, I can imagine the pressure. Like you said, maybe some shadiness going on with his family and just quits acting. And that's that's a huge move. And yeah, I feel like it's these early performances from him are iconic. Of course, he comes back later, years later when he's much older and is doing a little bit of TV acting and um like different YouTube series and stuff like that that he's done. But obviously never really captured that same magic that he had as like, you know, the cutest kid in the universe kind of thing. Right. And I guess would you say like just talking about him as an actor, and like you said, he's one of these just very famous, really I guess universally loved child actors you know everybody thought he's super adorable and his line readings are so funny you know and he just seems very mature and like wise beyond his years kind of thing how would you talk about his acting or like obviously you're a fan and you think he's one of the best child actors you'd say
1: well he's not like doing a lot dramatically it's just he has this charm he has this kid charm where like you said his line deliveries are all as amusing as possible it feels like I mean, he's a cute kid. He's got those big, gigantic anime eyes. I mean, let's face it again, that hair that we're always talking about we're, we're jealous of, like someone boiled a pot of... <laughs> he got a, that hair. Right. Someone boiled a pot of angel hair noodles and then dumped it on his skull. I mean, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I liked him. He was kind of like, in these movies, Kevin is kind of like the Uber kid. Like, he's very smart. He's very funny. He's very brave. He's not perfect though. He has flaws. He had some pretty yeah. big flaws that both movies have to deal with, but he just embodied this character so well. I mean, really even the other movies like Richie rich and whatever, like none of them are really that good, but at the same time, it's like, I feel like maybe something that is in a way haunted him is he is Kevin McAllister. Yeah. When you think of his acting career, you just think of Kevin, like, it's uh, such an iconic kid character. you think of him putting on the aftershave and then putting his palms to his face and you know screaming ah! That just seems like that's who he is.
0: Yeah, that makes me think of our, our friend Jackson, Boren, you know, good Twitter follow and friend, been guest on the show before, was sharing the original trailer of Home Alone 2, how they have the Statue of Liberty doing the same like slapping the cheeks and yelling, ah, and uh, just one going back to advertisements from the early nineties where they had the poster of home alone Two with the statue of Liberty, making that face kind of teasing the movie without even announcing the title or anything. And then a trailer like that, not showing pretty much any clips from the movie other than, Kevin holding the brick, saying like in the trenches again. Just classic marketing from the early 90s That's that feels really missed out on now, and just is really fun. And again, just an iconic moment that's calling back to the original. I think they had another scene here in Home Alone 2 that was scripted, or maybe filmed, but they ended up cutting it out, where he slaps his face again and, and yells ah in reaction to something, but Chris Columbus, the director, was worried that people would say, oh, this is too much of a a rehash of the first movie, which, you know, inevitably they did say that. That was a big critical um, issue brought up that this was just kind of beat for beat, a remake of the first movie, which, yeah, I mean, I feel like that's valid in some ways, but doesn't really distract me from enjoying it either.
1: Right, and maybe for the two people listening who don't know what Home Alone movies are about, (laughs) we kind of said it earlier, but in the first movie, Kevin's family is going on a trip to, where were they going in that one, France? France, yeah. And Kevin gets left behind. They forget Kevin at his house, and the night before, Kevin wished that his whole family would disappear, and then he wakes up and his wish came true, and Kevin is alone, and it turns out, a lot of families on a street are on vacation, and these two criminals, they're called the Wet Bandits in the first Home Alone movie, played by Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern, who are amazing. They're like cartoon villains come to life, but somehow not in a cheesy, campy way. They come to rob his house, and Kevin sets up violent traps that would kill people in a movie that wasn't a live-action cartoon to stop them. And in the second film, really... The end of that first Home Alone movie, his family comes back, and you feel like he's learned a lesson, and you'd hope that he's grown. But where is he in this second movie, Jordan? When everyone's together in the house, he's upstairs in his parents' room, alone, being by himself. Yeah. Jordan, like
0: Watching he's le- TV.
1: right, like he's learned nothing from that first film. And in this movie, his family is again going on a trip for vac- uh, for Christmas vacation. This time to Florida, but. There's a mix-up at the airport, so he doesn't get left home alone, like you said. That's not actually what happens, even though that's what it's called. He accidentally gets shipped to New York, but he has his dad's credit cards, and he has a big wad of cash that his dad had in his bag that Kevin has ended up with. So Kevin goes to the Plaza Hotel, which he saw being advertised at the end of a game show, and he holds up there, but unfortunately... Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern have broken out of prison and they're in New York too. Now they're going by the Sticky Bandits because Daniel Stern has put uh, duct tape on his hands and is trying to snatch purses and things that way. And inevitably, he must face off with these two villains again, but this time it's to stop them from robbing a toy store, which I'm going to get into so much detail about later, Jordan. You don't even know the detail I'm going to go into. Right, right.
0: No, and, And that's a part of the sentimentality, I think, that it brings back here is it's not just he's going to get back at these guys or he's going to escape from these bandits but it's you know for the the sick kids that all the money is going to go to from the toy store for the hospital, you know to fund this hospital or whatever so i don't know there's there's a little like cheesy schmaltiness there that i i kind of enjoy where he's like you know, you're not gonna mess with these kids and he's gonna get back at these bandits and stop them from, you know, robbing the toy store which I enjoyed that.
1: And it's so important to the themes of this film, Jordan. For sure, for sure. And greater depth than Kevin's transcendence. But first, I have to talk about the penis jokes. So, I have to ask you this. I don't know if you remember watching this when you were younger but Kevin has to go to get his tie from the bathroom when his family is still at their house before they go to the airport. right, right, right. And he tells his dad that he doesn't want to go in the bathroom because his Uncle Frank is in there taking a shower. And he told Kevin that if he saw him in the shower, he would grow up never feeling like a real man. I didn't get that before, but I get it now, Jordan, because he's saying that his penis is very large and that Kevin's penis will never be as big as his. Right. Kevin being his young adolescent nephew.
0: Yeah. And then he records them with his talk boy, tape recorder, saying, you know, he's recording him singing in the shower, but then when he sees Kevin, he's like, get out of here, you little pervert. So then, you know, he's accusing his, what, little uh, nephew for spying on him and being a pervert as well. So, yeah, this is uh, this is definitely the villain of the McAllister family, <laughs> I would say.
1: Uncle Frank sucks, and he's very Uncle Frank, cheap. Frank, yeah. He's mooching off of Kevin's dad, because that's the two families there. That make up the, the greater McAllister family. It's
0: yeah, he Kevin calls him out on that too, right?
1: He does, he does. And that, that pisses Uncle Frank off even more. But really the the true villain in Kevin's life is his brother Buzz, who just sucks. He sucks in the first movie, and he's an even bigger jerk now, because he's like at the, the top end of puberty, so he's a lot bigger than Kevin now, and an even bigger jerk. And of course, like you said, there's the scene where they're singing the song before they leave for their trip at some kind of get-together, and Buzz messes with Kevin and embarrasses him, and then Kevin pushes him, and then everyone falls down but Kevin. And I gotta ask you this. Since Uncle Frank made a penis joke, whenever Buzz calls Kevin a little trout sniffer, does trout mean penis? Is he saying Kevin likes to sniff penises, Jordan?
0: I have no idea. I have never known why he calls him a trout sniffer. (laughs) I make this made no sense to me but i'm sure you know we could do a little urban dictionary stuff here or something let's see trout <laughs> sniffer what is a trout sniffer according to urban dictionary is a person who sniffs the inside of a female's underwear
1: oh okay so not penises uh dirty female underwear there you go
0: yeah there you go oh uh well yeah trout sniffer or lesbian so, he could be calling him a lesbian.
1: There you go. Home Alone 2. Kids film.
0: Beat that, you little trout sniffer.
1: Well, let's get into the Plaza, Jordan, where where he goes to stay and where he utilizes the recording of Uncle Frank. What did you think about the casting of the Plaza Hotel employees?
0: thought this was a really fun section of the movie. Uh, so, you've got Tim Curry as one of the concierge. You've got Rob Schneider again. We talked about him in Surf Ninjas, bringing him (laughs) back. Uh, And, you know, much more enjoyable or just better written character here. You could still say he has that kind of like swarminess here, but I feel like they put that to good effect or that fits his character well. He's like this bellboy, and he's just kind of, I don't know, like wrinkling his nose and kind of annoyed by Kevin, uh, he's, you know, he repeatedly is trying to get a tip from Kevin for doing stuff for him, like bringing him room service, and Kevin's just giving him gum. And that he's at one chewed. point. Yeah, that he's chewed, that kind of stuff. Well, now he gives him a stick of gum, uh, or a good stick of gum, and then later Buzz gives him a chewed up piece of gum, which calls back to the earlier scene, but makes no sense why, like, he would think he wants his gum out of his mouth, I don't know. But yeah. Lots, lots of gum chewing, lots of sticks of gum given to Rob Schneider in this movie.
1: Yep. And what about Tim Curry? Classic Tim Curry here, who at one point in the film, whenever he, he has Kevin dead to rights, because Kevin has, you know, he's so smart and not has all these schemes, he's able to call the hotel and pretend like he's his father and ask if basically his son can check into the hotel, which Kevin then does. But... Tim Curry is suspicious, and then there's a scene where he finds out the card is has been reported stolen, and then his face morphs into the Grinch from How the Grinch Stole Christmas. You know, the, right. the scene <laughs> fades into that, and he looks exactly like the Grinch. It's crazy.
0: Yeah, he's got that crazy grin. I mean, just perfect evil face on Tim Curry, like, playfully evil. He did play the devil at one point in Legends, so it makes sense. But yeah plaza hotel as a character in the movie i I dig the the setting at one point apparently the plaza hotel used to offer the home alone experience around christmas where guests could pay to stay in a room similar to the one that kevin stays in and you'd get the home alone gifts like movies you get to take a limousine and see the filming locations you get to go to Uh, The toy store that was based, you know, the one upon which Duncan's toys in this movie was based upon. And uh, yeah, I just think that's like an interesting, like real world tie in where you have like a movie so big like this that you have like either amusement park ride or you have like some experience that you could take that connects with the movie. And I miss stuff like that. I mean, there's stuff like that out there, like Disney World, Harry Potter World, whatever, you know, I'm sure there's like a million dollar Marvel ride somewhere. But I don't know. I I guess we take what we can get nowadays. But it just feels like it's not like Home Alone 2 is a or Home Alone itself is like a smaller movie in comparison, you know, but I guess for just like old sad sex that are nostalgic for 90s movies are like, oh, man, I wish we had more stuff like that. (laughs)
1: There's a magic to everything you just said, though. It's like a special holiday. Magic for sure with with everything there.
0: I feel like that's magic. That's the right word for this movie in a way. It just, a lot of it does feel magical in, like I said, this cozy way where it's low key in in some respects, but he, you know, as he's getting into the different like shenanigans and, you know, he's like evading the hotel staff and tricking them. Like you've got this scene we're going to get to where. Tim Curry and you know all the hotel staff are coming to kick him out of the room and then he uses the talk boy to play back scenes from the film noir like gangster movie that he's been recording and you know different elements from that that he throws in you know like as the character is shooting off the machine gun them them like running out of the room and everything so like you've got these like wacky hijinks but at the same time the overall like feel and vibe I get from this is just like very magical and and whimsical and like sentimental. And I don't know, just, just feel kind of like suckered by it, but (laughs) just along for the ride, you know, like, I don't really care. I'm I'm just into it. I do want to talk about the gangster movie that he watches in both of these. I was hoping you would. Because I don't know about you, but growing up with these, I always thought these were real movies that <laughs> he was watching cuz as a kid how are you supposed to know you watch it and you're like oh he's just watching it. it must be like some old movie that he's watching that's a real movie but a few years back it literally freaking blew my mind to find out these were fake and I don't know why that had like such an impact when I found this out I was just like oh my gosh are you serious like they made angels with filthy souls for home alone and then they made angels with even filthier souls for the <laughs> sequel and to me that's just so cool it's not you know that they like went and studied film noir and like made these movies and you've got like these classic lines from it like
1: i'm gonna give you to the count of three to get your lousy lion low down four and carcass out my door jordan real quick what does four-flushing carcass mean? That has stuck with me for my entire life.
0: Right, like, I don't even know. It's like Trout never. I don't even know what that means, <laughs> but it's in my head.
1: It's so good. And the names of the people, when he tells her, but the gist of these movies is basically that you have this psychotic gangster who has been wronged, or in his mind, been wronged by someone, and he threatens them and tells them they have to the count of ten, and then counts to three, and then shoots right. them with a Tommy gun and laughs maniacally.
0: So apparently four-flusher... Looking this up again, more definitions is slang for a person who bluffs or attempts to deceive, as in a poker draw. Oh! Like a four flush is a poker draw, so if you're four flushing, I know you're trying to bluff.
1: You know, my mind, when I was a child, thought he meant someone who is so fat that when you cut them up into pieces, you have to flush the toilet four times to get them down.
0: Four flusher i mean to a 10 year old that would be the context you would put it in i'm sure yeah
1: right that's what i thought
0: i love that you got to cut the crap up into four pieces to flush (laughs) it
1: and what about the names that he says when he's saying all the people that she's made out with when he says little mo with the gimpy leg
0: leg yeah so good and then you know in this one you've got I think it's like the janitor or somebody who's in the room with Tim Curry, and he's like Cliff, and then he's got the name tag. He's like, "You've been, you've been going out with Cliff," and then they all look over at Cliff or whatever. I think it was Cliff, maybe it was Craig or something. Oh, no, I but think I, it was Cliff. I, I don't know. It's just like little fun touches like that. That's great.
1: I think my favorite bit of acting ever from Tim Curry is whenever Kevin asks for a limo with a pizza, and whenever he comes downstairs. Tim Curry is like, your limo's here, and the pizza, the way he says pizza. Yeah. It's like it's some type of alien artifact that only <laughs> Kevin McAllister would want. It's so smarmy. It's insane. That line reading is my favorite thing Tim Curry has ever done. And I like Earth 2 and Tim Curry in Earth 2. So I just want to throw that out there. And also that Rob Schneider's name in this movie is Cedric. So that Tim Curry can say things like, Come along, Cedric, and it, it just makes him seem like such a ponce. It's so amazing.
0: Right. He is such a ponce in this movie, and it's just working on all four cylinders, all four flushing cylinders. Flush those cylinders out with some Tim Curry magic. But you're talking about that pizza when he goes outside into just the frigid cold of, you know, winter in New York and the white limousine is waiting for there. And the is it Tim Curry with the pizza or is it somebody else? But
1: I think Rob Schneider is holding it and opens it. Yes,
0: Rob Schneider is holding the pizza and he opens the pizza box and steam just like flushes out. I'm just gonna keep going with the flushing. It just pours (laughs) out of this box and it just looks magical. It's like as a it's just like a ten year old's wet dream. You know, you're just like you got the limousine. He's right around drinking coke, eating pizza, listening to music. It just captures everything that you would want as a kid in the early
1: 90s. Did you have wet dreams when you were 10? I, I wasn't there yet.
0: About pizza. <laughs> sure. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, I think I w- maybe wet the bed because I drank too much Pepsi when I was eating pizza.
0: That's what I thought the term wet dream meant. Yeah, and you've you've got the, the cousin character wetting the bed or everybody uh, afraid of him wetting the bed and drinking Coke you know oh, right
1: so. isn't that Macaulay Culkin's little brother playing that character
0: yeah Kieran Culkin is playing cousin whatever <laughs> Freddy or something
1: I like cousin whatever
0: yeah cousin whatever yeah cousin
1: whatever pissed bat again
0: fun fact he's wearing Batman we we're talking about Batman he's wearing Batman pajamas and this one in the first movie he tells the The old guy character, how he knew a kid that got made fun of in school because everybody found out he wore Batman pajamas, and then he's got his cousin wearing Batman pajamas in this one, so nice little connection there.
1: Very nice connection.
0: Uh, We were talking about Plaza Hotel. I feel like we have to talk about the Trump issue here. He owned the hotel. He had a cameo in the movie, Uh, but apparently uh, Chris Columbus, back in an interview in 2020, said Trump had kind of bullied his way into this cameo making it a part of the deal to shoot in the scenes of the lobby. He's basically like, I'll let you shoot here, but you got to give me a cameo in the movie, which I just think is funny. You know, any other just like normal owner would be like, give me a cameo in the movie. And they'd be like, oh, sure. Fine. But you know, since it's Trump, it's like, mm-hmm. I've got to like wheel in deal, make this like a part of the scheme to get in this movie. And like against the will of the filmmaker who apparently wasn't happy about this but when they screened the movie for the first time the test audience cheered when trump appeared so chris columbus (laughs) felt better about it
1: it's weird to think of the 90s now trump is like such a polarizing figure and like one of the most well-known people in the world but in the 90s he was just a beloved like media personality right like this is even before
0: just a super rich dude. Yeah. Like he's just basically like, you know, known for being rich.
1: This is before he even did uh what I don't watch reality shows, but what was the you're fired one? Like the oh, apprentice. The apprentice. This yeah. is before even that.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So long ago. Super young time. looking
0: here, yeah. Not not a giant Cheeto yet.
1: The thing is, I don't know if you remember this about this movie, and it really stood out to me here. Within like an hour, we're out of the plaza and we never go back there with Kevin. Kevin gets found out and has to make a mad dash and get out of there. Because of course, as his parents note later on, whenever they get to New York to try to get Kevin to try to save Kevin, why did you chase and like threaten <laughs> a 10 year old boy? Like, why didn't you just tell him, hey, your, your parents probably want to get in touch with you. We'll try to help you. Freaking right, psychos.
0: Like, you're a thief. And you must pay. I'll chase you out of my hotel. (laughs) Yeah. Probably just because, yeah, Tim Curry is the devil. (laughs) He's the nice looking devil. The smiling devil.
1: He's a legend.
0: I mean, that's basically so he can literally be lost in New York, right? Because at this point, he's just in Central Park with the hobos and the pigeon lady.
1: First movie, you had kind of an outcast character that Kevin is terrified of, and In this movie, you also have another outcast character that Kevin is terrified
0: of. I like that he's scared of her for, like, maybe two seconds in the park, though. He's like, I think, like, her head pops up at someone and he screams and he runs away. But then a minute later, he's like, oh, never mind. (laughs) You were just trying to help me. (laughs) Let me go into this abandoned attic of the Carnegie Hall with a complete crazy looking stranger.
1: Well, he's shown growth here, right? Because
0: yeah, exactly. Old Man
1: Marley from the first film that he was so scared of, not only does he found out Old Man Marley is more, there's more than meets the eye with him. He's actually not only like a decent, good guy who's having some similar issues to the ones I'm having, he saves Kevin at the end of the movie. He saves Kevin's life. So I right. think now he knows, like, okay, just because someone looks scary doesn't necessarily mean that they're bad.
0: But I feel like maybe he took that lesson too far with this one because it's like okay <laughs> you you just met this crazy looking pigeon lady that doesn't necessarily mean you need to go with a stranger into <laughs> a random attic you know where she might murder you doesn't happen she does save him at the end just like old man Marley but I'm just saying like kids listening out there you know or watching Home Alone 2 in general you might just want to use a little bit more discernment like yeah, she's a good lady in the end, but took a risk. That's all I'm saying. He took a risk.
1: <laughs> yes, children, all you little trout sniffers listening to film shake right now. Remember <laughs> <Trout> that. <snippers. laughs> I will say, Kevin does get his foot stuck as he's trying to run from her, and then she walks up to him and helps him get his foot out. And then he runs. A- he has that moment where he runs away and then stops and realizes that she's not bad. So at least something does oh, happen there. You were just trying to off. get
0: my my foot out of the rock so you could bring me home and boil me in your stew. that would have been Uh, my thought
1: and also we should mention he comes across the bandits comes across daniel stern and joe pesci they get him captive for a little while and they know he's around and there's a really great line from pesci where he says
0: i've got a gun in my pocket you open your
1: mouth and you'll be spitting gum out to your forehead
0: amazing (laughs) i love it so talking about joe pesci for a moment here and his relationship with macaulay culkin so apparently after one scene while making this, Colkin asked Pesci why he never smiled, and Pesci told him to shut up. And at the time, <laughs> Pesci was like, "Oh, you know, he's a he's a pampered a lot by a lot of people, but not me. I think he likes that."
1: <laughs> <laughs> Knowing how Macaulay Culkin is now, I feel like maybe he did like that.
0: <laughs> probably so, because he's like, "Yeah, yeah I, I probably was a little little pampered," and. Pesci was just being real with me. At the same time, you know, along with the same note here, I have Michael Jackson visited Macaulay Culkin on the set.
1: They actually had a close friendship and he said, you know, maybe something happened with him and those other kids, but he never did anything weird with me.
0: Oh, okay. Well, that's good to know because just reading that next to the Pesci thing was like a little terrifying.
1: He also said, though, that whenever he got older, it seemed like he like aged out of Michael Jackson's friend group. (laughs) Which was pretty sad because he was like, I really, I, I, if I remember right, he said, you know, I really could have used him when I really needed to deal with, like, growing up with the fame. But, uh, you know, he wasn't around anymore. I don't know. Maybe I'm, he was
0: I'm too old for him. That oh geez i don't know
1: we also have the scene with the toy store which is important this is this is where he meets duncan the toy store owner and again the magic you're talking about it's this gigantic magical amazing toy store that's all i have in my
0: notes for toy store is (laughs) magic
1: (laughs) magic it's like a take on fao schwartz but like even more magical which i think fao schwartz closed because we're in the worst timeline possible but he buys some things from there and then he finds out that the toy store is donating a bunch of money to a children's hospital so he gives a donation and Duncan, the toy store owner who himself is a little magical he gives him an ornament and it's two turtle doves and basically the gist of it is they're very special because you can give one to someone else which is going to come up later yes And then he finds out that the bastards, Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern, I don't care if you narrated my life story in the Wonder Years, you're evil in this movie. (laughs) They're so fun in these, I feel like, because they're funny and they're goofy, but I don't know if you'll agree with me, but they're definitely menacing too, Like especially for if you're a kid. I mean, he tells Kevin he's going to blow a hole through Kevin's skull (laughs) and his gum is going to come out of it, and he sells it. I mean, I feel like even Daniel Stern, who is really playing up the Looney Tunes aspect here... There are moments where he is kind of threatening. I don't know. What do you think?
0: No, they definitely dip into moments of darkness like that. Yeah. Overall, pretty cartoony and ridiculous, but I mean, there's some real threat. Like once they, I mean, we'll get to the, you know, I guess we'll save this for later because we'll get to that. I was going to say here in the toy store, I do like that their plan and it, it works actually is they're going to hide in these little toy houses Like these little kind of like playhouses for kids. You're going to hide in those until the shop closes. And then they'll just pop out and like open up the register. It's so simple, but it's kind of genius too. If Kevin hadn't noticed and, you know, found out their plan, then that would have been like a pretty easy win, right?
1: That's right. He would have vanquished them quite easily. But then he wouldn't have had to grow or learn any new lessons, Jordan. Yep. Are you ready for a monologue about nihilism in Home Alone 2?
0: I'm ready. There's a scene in this
1: movie after Kevin gets kicked out, he doesn't have a place to stay before he runs into the park and, and runs into pigeon lady for the second time. He met her a little earlier and ran away, but he runs into her and has the moment that we talked about. So before this happens, Kevin runs into the streets and it's terrifying, right? It's full of all these terrifying figures Kevin is very frightened. He seems to be in real danger. And I know there was criticism. I remember at the time about this movie being too dark for children compared to the first film. I mean, I remember seeing kids be scared of this scene. It's pretty scary where he's running around. It's almost like a terrifying hellscape.
0: It's the real New York, man. Early 90s New York.
1: (laughs) And I'll tell you, Jordan, this is when Kevin sees the void. I was really excited that I was the first person to mash these two philosophies together, but I Googled it online after I wrote this, and you know what? A few other people have come up with this idea, too, but you know what? That just means that there's some merit to it. And I don't mean relating to Home Alone. No one has ever said these things I'm about to say about Home Alone. People have just said this about humanity in general. (laughs) Oh,
0: I thought you said you found, like, other nihilistic rants about Home Alone, too. No. I was really excited for you.
1: I'm pretty sure I'm the first.
0: Well, there you go. Breaking new ground. Here on Film Shake.
1: <laughs> right. But I'm not the first person, apparently, to paradoxically combine hedonistic nihilism. That's right. Kevin is a hedonistic nihilist. He wants to be in a state of solitude where the only meaning is indulging in his own pleasure. And he shows this in the movie. He doesn't want his family to be around. He wants to be on this vacation alone. He orders room service, a limo. He partakes in as much luxury as possible however his hedonism crashes directly into nihilism as his indulgence gives him no pleasure thus rendering it meaningless because it's really not giving him any joy right like he thinks this is what he wants he just wants to do all these fun things that only serve himself and they don't really give him any pleasure at this moment kevin's worldview is absent meaning and the plot makes the philosophical metaphysics of this concrete when Kevin literally has his tools of indulgence, the plaza hotel room and his money, taken away. At this point, Kevin wanders the horrific midnight streets of New York, and ultimately sees the void, a terrifying emptiness where nothing has meaning or purpose. Kevin, at this moment in the film, rejects his hedonistic nihilism, ultimately risking meaning by purposely connecting to the pigeon woman. His conversation with the pigeon woman makes Kevin's rejection of his hedonistic nihilism explicit as he states, I always think I'll have a lot of fun if I'm alone, but when I'm alone, it isn't that much fun at all. I don't care how much people bug me sometimes. I'd rather be with somebody other than be by myself. And we need to say about Pigeon Lady. Pigeon Lady was once in a romantic relationship with a man and he left her. Do you remember when she talked about her life story?
0: Yeah, tying together the themes of aloneness and how she's got to get out there and try again, basically.
1: Right, but she can't do it. She just has to separate herself from the world. She doesn't want to be hurt by the world again. And this is the point where Home Alone 2 Kevin not only transcends his previous philosophies, but he transcends the Kevin of
0: Home Alone 1.
1: Home Mm. Alone 1's Kevin's goal involves an interpersonal conflict wherein Kevin protects his property from intruders.
0: I just love Home Alone 1 being a phrase, because we have a Home Alone 2.
1: (laughs) That's right. Home Alone 1 did not exist until Home Alone 2 did.
0: That's right. And there's a Home Alone 1, Kevin, and there's a Home Alone 2, Kevin. Not to make anything more confusing.
1: That's right. And by the end of this film, they're distinctly different because the Home Alone to Kevin is now given a deeper meaning, wherein Kevin becomes an active and beneficial member to society, as he declares that he will fight the Sticky Bandits, not for his own benefit, but for the less fortunate children of New York, as his meaning has elevated to, I will protect the resources of others, i.e. the money Duncan intended to go toward the children.
0: By throwing a brick through a window. Hell yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thus Kevin abandons hedonistic nihilism, for effective altruism that's what his philosophy is now effective altruism there in which go. he now takes it upon himself to pursue acts that bring about better well-being for others
0: yeah that's what us 10 uh, year olds are getting out of this movie when we watched it
1: that's right jordan that's that's what i, I was absorbing
0: altruism yeah hedonistic nihilism <laughs> turning into altruism that's that's that was my takeaway in 1992.
1: That's right. That's why it was like making me feel like these deeper feelings that I wasn't prepared to to deal with. You know, I was like, yeah, uh. you couldn't
0: articulate them until now.
1: That's right. And his statement, you can mess with a lot of things, but you can't mess with kids on Christmas. Posits Kevin is now the defender of children, again, transcending the Kevin of Home Alone 1, whose mission statement was a simple Kevin centric this is my house. I have to defend it.
0: He's almost a defender of Christmas in itself. You know, the Christmas spirit. Ooh,
1: I love that, Jordan. That's brilliant.
0: I mean, you just you just, you know, you teed it up for me, buddy. I'm just taking swings at what you're giving me.
1: Home run, JC. Home run. Indeed. Kevin's similar talk with old man Marley while touching upon family ultimately centers around fear. Remember, Kevin is afraid of a lot of things in that first film, including the furnace. Remember that? Ah, yes. And he's afraid of these sticky bandits at first in the film. But that gives Kevin the determination to defend his house, and it gives old man Marley the determination to move past his fear to call his son, because that was old man Marley's whole deal. He was just estranged from his son, because they got in a fight.
0: Right, right.
1: Fear is, again, an element in this Home Alone 2 conversation with an outcast. But the trepidation in this case isn't over a simple interpersonal connection or a defense of personal property, but connecting to and becoming a functioning and beneficial member of society and meaning in general. In the process of his own moral and philosophical elevation, Kevin encourages the pigeon lady, who I would describe as an ascetic nihilist, and that she has actually found meaning in an acute devotion to meaninglessness, a non-existence which seems a final barrier to suicide, and helps her reconnect with society vis-a-vis himself, so that she can once again find meaning by reconnecting with the world. That's right. And I won't even get into the further depth provided by Kevin's line, I won't forget to remember you, which is pretty damn deep if you think about it, nor Pigeon Lady's response, don't make promises you can't keep, because this movie is deep, bruh.
0: Oh, and he tells her, you know, yeah, you've got to go out there and be a part of society again. You might just want to change your clothes and take off the pigeon crap. Right. (laughs) Take a bath first, you know, because you (laughs) stink. I forgot to mention earlier, we're talking about his line readings and, you know, his just very precociousness as a as a child actor. But I feel like there are times I definitely sense him like just regurgitating the line in a way. Like, he has this charm and this cuteness, but it's, I don't know, there's a little bit of stiffness at times. I mean, you're going to get that with a child actor, and it's, like, stupid to sit there and kind of criticize, you know, or analyze any any of the acting of a, of a kid. But, you know, they're actors, too, and so, you know, you can look at their performances and the merits and the the flaws, and there's times in this where I'm like, yeah, he's, Apparently he had a photographing memory and I didn't know this about Macaulay Culkin so that's helped him as you know a young boy to memorize these lines but yeah there's some stiffness there where it's like yeah especially in that attic scene with the the pigeon lady where it's like yeah, you got to get out there <laughs> you know and stuff like that and I was just like yeah these these sentimental moments these big like emotional moments feels a little bit strained for for him but it's not the knock you know the film as a whole or or, or that scene as a whole really
1: Right, because these aren't, I mean, again, like me watching the movie when I was the same age as him, I'm not really getting these deeper things that I'm telling you now, and most people won't get these deeper things that I'm telling you now because I'm a psycho, but... (laughs) He's saying things that are wise beyond his years, like most or pretty much every 10 or 11 year old kid is not going to say things to an adult that Kevin does. He's like the greatest therapist who ever lived. He's
0: amazing. So
1: (laughs) obviously it's not going to sound 100 percent natural coming out of a kid's mouth. But I'm not sure if another kid other than Macaulay Culkin could sell these moments this well.
0: Yeah. Like, my 10-year-old would be just breaking everything in that attic as they rummage through it, you know, or, like, <laughs> probably fall off the the ledge <laughs> to the orchestra below, and that's the end of the movie.
1: <laughs> and then the credits would roll.
0: Yeah. I thought the nihilism that you were going to bring to this discussion was totally going to be... Just about the nihilistic violence that he inflicts on our bandits here, not like I don't know all, th- all these deeper philosophical things. <laughs> so just like, yeah, he's a nihilistic like psychopath, you know. Like there's no meaning in life. He doesn't care about the you know the well being of others. He's just he's just gonna torture these guys you know but no i mean he does it in the name of altruism for sure so
1: right that's one thing too how he transcends home alone one kevin because he is adept at violence he's a genius at violence no one is as good at
0: scarily so
1: yeah. Right, and but he only uses this. I don't want necessarily say for selfish reasons in the first film, but it's just to protect his house. It's not for the greater good of really anyone else. I mean, you could say maybe his family, but it's. It, he says my house, you know. Yeah. But in this movie, he's using that violence for others. He's putting his violent skills to the test. You know, he's like the soldier. The sol- Jack Ryan is the soldier for truth and clear and present danger, whereas you know. <laughs>
0: Kevin McAllister text Ryan. That's
1: right, Kevin McAllister is the soldier for children,
0: soldier for children and the Christmas spirit.
1: And the Christmas spirit itself, like he said. And I think you can really see how much this transforms him at the end of the movie. And I guess I'll wait till we get to that final scene to say what Kevin says there, but it really shows he is not home alone one kevin anymore but jordan the traps we got to talk about what he does to these guys right
0: i want to ask you real quick just you know on the note of the possible psychopathy of this child torturing these adults are you familiar with the youtube comedy video that macaulay culkin did called drivers yes okay so for those that aren't familiar there's a about a five minute clip you can find on YouTube and it's an episode of this show called Drivers, D-R-Y-V-R-S. And so in this episode, Macaulay Culkin is like long hair, burnout looking, just kind of freaked out kid. He's basically playing the Kevin character as an adult and he's like filling in for his wife as like a type of Uber driver. But he's picking up this guy and he starts like complaining about his wife, like just flaked out on him. And he's he's just like cursing out, you know, up a storm. He's just like disgruntled and just kind of just grungy looking and everything. And he ends up making the guy that he's picking up uh, drive the car. And then his mom calls him and he forwards the call. He doesn't answer the call. And the driver, the guy that he picks up is like, oh man, that's ice cold. And then he goes on this rant about how like his mom as a kid left him as an eight-year-old at home (laughs) alone for a week. And he had to fend off his house from these invaders and he still has nightmares about all this. And basically it's just like showing how like screwed up he is now, you know, and he still has these demons. But then he gets carjacked and he like basically abducts the carjacker who's trying to rob them brings him home to like his garage and then like tortures him and the credits are just macaulay calking like run around like soaked in blood and like gleefully like dancing around this guy that he's killing and it's just like oh wait that's right this kid was always a psychopath and my favorite thing is at the end he pops up and he's got his hair like all in his face and he's like staring at the camera like again breaking the fourth wall just like the aftershave scene right but this time he's like going ah but it's like because he's a manic psychopath right it's pretty great it's pretty great but yeah all that to say that I feel like that is the logical conclusion of this character. (laughs) Uh,
1: And he inflicts such violence in the final half hour of this film.
0: I had some questions or, or just comments on that. Like I said earlier, in my mind, Home Alone and Home Alone 2 are just an hour and a half of booby traps. But that's really not a whole big part of the movie. And I was kind of surprised that there wasn't as much of the booby traps watching this. like It's just a scene. I mean, it's like beginning of the third act, basically, but then we go into Central Park and the Pigeon Lady and other stuff. And I mean, there's a good bit of the movie where he goes to the townhouse that his uncle owns. His uncle's out of town. It's being renovated. He's set up all these traps in this townhouse for the Marv and Harry to be inflicted with. The main thing that sticks out is the bricks to the face to Daniel Stern as he's throwing these bricks off the top of the building, repeatedly hitting Daniel Stern in the face. I mean, all this is played for comedy, but in my mind, I'm like, and they actually got a doctor to like die, you know, to analyze some of these scenes at some point. And we're like, yeah, that would cause like permanent brain damage or in the worst possibility, death. So, yeah, I'm watching this thinking, like, this kid is terrible because, yeah, he's, like, gonna kill these guys. Of course, he you could say he's defending himself. But, again, why not just call the cops and, like, hole up at the police station or something? A little uh, nihilistic of him to, to set up all these booby traps. But it's, you know, it's the fun of the movie. It's definitely why people are coming back to this and why they love the first one. But, yeah, the bricks to the face, man. It's just hard to watch and seeing the dents on harry's face or marv's face just like oh man this is rough and of course you have the paint cans and the nails and the butt and crotch and just like endless amounts of like goo that feel like are being poured on these guys like different layers upon layers of like paint and then oil and then you've got the Bird seed in the park, and then you've got the feathers all over him after the pigeons attack him. So it almost feels like you're watching like a a Jackson Pollock painting or something being like wreaked <laughs> havoc upon these these two guys.
1: Whenever he puts the gigantic rolling toolbox down the staircase and wedges them into the wall and basically crushes them, which, like you yeah. said, basically yeah. every one of these traps would kill someone. That's why I mean, it's just straight Looney Tunes but i don't think like the tone feels out of place like they really no. balance it well
0: yeah yeah
1: i love when their noses get bent to the side and they have to straighten them out at it's the same
0: great. exact time yeah they do it in unison which is fun mm-hmm. yeah i mean it's totally cartoony looney tunes so i feel like the tone is fine but it's just stepping back for a moment like considering the reality of this like no these guys would be dead basically
1: Something very similar happens to the first film. They somehow survive the traps. And one thing that I noticed in this movie that I kind of remembered from back in the day but really here is how often Kevin kind of fails or something bad happens to them. Like he gets caught multiple times, found out multiple times. And then he has a really bad fall here where he's trying to get away after he's done all the traps and he slips and he hits his head on the ground and really, I think, got a concussion. He had symptoms of a concussion.
0: Yeah, he slips on the ice, which I thought was a nice callback to the original movie, right? Because didn't the bandits, he like had set up a trap where they slipped on some ice. And I think they make comment of that here where they're like, how do you like the ice now, kid? Or... Something like that.
1: Right. And this is going to sound weird, but the third time that I watched this in December of 1992, part of me thought, like, is this adulthood catching up with Kevin? Like, he's got this <laughs> childhood luck, and it's, like, finally running out, and the real world is crashing down.
0: That's why he had to quit acting, be- you know, before it got too late.
1: Right. And then he goes to the park with the wet, no, not wet anymore, sticky the bandits sticky. Who, are- who are going to shoot him. Who are literally sticky at this in the point. point. Yeah. That's right. They're covered in so much crap. It's amazing. Yeah,
0: but yeah, you're right. They're they're gonna go. They're gonna bring him to the park, and he's tipped the cops off. Like somehow, in all the wackiness of the booby traps, he gets away to call on a payphone. Uh, speaking of payphones, like in our our last episode, and your your love of payphones from the early nineties, uh, he calls the cops and basically tells them meet me in Central Park because these bandits and these kidnappers are, are going to kill me. They have a gun and look for fireworks. And it's just like Kismet, how he plans all this out. And he knows that, I guess he was his plan was to run into the park and lure them there. But yeah, they end up capturing him and then bringing him to the park anyway. So I guess it's just like happenstance that they went along with this plan in a way without knowing it. Pigeon Lady saves the day. She says kevin watch out or run kevin and throws the bird seed at the two bandits covered in the seed and then about 300 pigeons just fly at them and cover them and these are real pigeons real bird seed daniel stern said later that a pigeon really flew into his mouth and quote that was revolting I can only imagine the early 90s new york pigeons being in your mouth and all over your body, that would be terrible.
1: Yeah. You know what the 90s is saying to 2022 there is, keep your CGI, bitch. I use real pigeons. That's right. <laughs> And the Sticky Bandits are defeated. Kevin says thank you to Pigeon Lady. And you know what I thought? This time watching it because I couldn't remember completely. They better pay off everything with Pigeon Lady, including the Christmas ornament. He's got to give her that other dove. Oh, yeah. First, Kevin goes to Rockefeller Center to the giant tree. And you know what was weird, Jordan? Watching this movie so many times when I was younger... The New York there felt like this like haunted mystical place, but now I've been there a few times, and I've been to basically every location in this movie, but it still feels that way. It's like, I've I've been to all these places, and they still have that magic, which is pretty cool.
0: Did you get the Home Alone experience at the plaza when you went?
1: I took a piss at the plaza. That's all I've done there.
0: <laughs> took a piss a, on the plaza?
1: <laughs> no, it was it was a nice bathroom. It was a okay. really nice bathroom, okay. uh, but I did not stay in there, no. But the scene of the Christmas tree, what I was talking about before, how this new Kevin, this Home Alone 2 Kevin has now transcended completely Home Alone 1 Kevin because Really, at the beginning of this movie, even though Kevin has not learned his lesson from the first film, he's still isolating himself. He's still not interacting with his family. What happens to him with his family in the fight isn't really entirely his fault. Buzz is being a real a-hole, right? Like, all he really does is, like, push Buzz back after Buzz is messing with him, and then really just tell the truth to his family. Like, his, his uncle is a jerk who is cheap. Buzz was being a jerk. He really doesn't do anything that wrong in that context. Well, though- I mean,
0: it's his attitude, I think. It's not necessarily that he's wrong about what he says. It's just how he says it and how he he reacts and is kind of just vicious in a way to his family at the beginning. He's very, you know, unforgiving and he's you know, very snarky and talking back to his parents and everything. And so yeah, I think it's just his his general very defensive, very like vicious response to He was just pushing his brother and like happened to knock everybody down.
1: Right. You're right. It's, it's his attitude. It's, it's more like his outlook on the situation than his actual actions, which is what he transcends here at the end, because he says a prayer at the end of the movie at the tree. He says, I know I don't deserve a Christmas. Even if I did a good deed, I don't want any (laughs) presents. Instead. I want to take back every mean thing I ever said to my family. And this is where he transcends Jordan. This is where he goes to a higher plane of spirituality. He says, even if they don't take back the things they said, I don't care. I love all of them, including Buzz.
0: Right. I, I just watched that and was like, oh, I wish I wish my kids would have that attitude <laughs> or any movie that comes out now at the same. Well, yeah, that too. At the same time, I want to call Sus on the pigeon lady and her, uh, faulty, you know, th- theology or, or whatever, you know, worldview that she presents to him was like, you know, you can make up for all your bad deeds by doing a good deed. I'm like, oh no, that's work-based theology. You know, <laughs> Or do, you, what are you Catholic? I don't know. Um, but yeah, I'm like, no, that, that doesn't work in my Protestant worldview. But, uh, anyway, yeah.
1: And it doesn't work with Kevin's either. Cause he does start that off with, I know I, I still don't deserve, christmas even if i did do a good deed so there yeah, you go kevin is uh true
0: true depravity <laughs>
1: he's been the, he's been reformed
0: <laughs> that's right true reform theology there
1: <laughs> but of course he says you know if my family if they can't show up at least let my mom show up and his mom does show up his prayer here is answered by the presence of his mother because this whole movie his parents have been trying to figure out where kevin is they don't even know he's in new york and when they finally get to the hotel and they, they say all that stuff that I said, they say, what kind of idiots do you have working here at the plaza? To Which Tim Curry responds with pride. Was it him? It might have been the lady. There's a lady there, too. One of them says, the finest in New York, which I thought was amazing. Yeah, I
0: think it was her. I think it was the lady. But, yeah, going back to the scene with the mother, and you've got a lot of great scenes with Catherine O'Hara running around New York looking for her son. Just desperate i think reading up about this that she wanted to have more scenes where it felt like the mother was actively doing something you know she wanted a, her character to look like she was doing everything she could to find kevin and i feel like they present that well you know we're at the scene where she talks to the policeman and he's like oh don't worry you know we'll take care of it and she tells him you know if do you have kids what would you do if you're in my situation? Oh, I'd be doing exactly what you'd be doing actually. And then the whole scene at the Rockefeller center in front of the tree and then meeting back up and standing at a distance from, from each other for a moment. And then her getting down on her knees and hugging him, just going back to the whole magical element of this movie and the whimsicalness and just the sentimentality and the coziness of everything that, I felt like was just at its peak there, just wrapping it all up in a nice bow. No pun intended, because it's Christmas. (laughs) And then we have the big Christmas scene with all the presents and the toys under the tree the next morning. But hey, going back to your uh, hedonism and his rejection of hedonism and materialism, he's about to open his present. And then he remembers he's got the turtle doves and he's got to run out to the park and meet Pigeon Lady and give her one of the turtle doves. We never get to see what the present was from Mr. Duncan. That kind of bugged me. I was like, wait, I wanted to know what was in there. Like, what did, <laughs> what kind of presents did Mr. Duncan get everybody? Like, how did he know what everybody wanted? He doesn't know this family.
1: <laughs> I'm glad that they showed that he is kind of magical, like he was able to vanish whenever he was with Kevin and Kevin looked back to where like, it kind of explains like, oh, he's magical. So he was would... Santa
0: Claus. Oh, yeah. so no,
1: I mean, he's basically Santa Claus. Yeah. Yes, but he does. He see, he looks and sees the turtle dove ornament, and he thinks, you know what? I need to go find Pigeon Lady, because she needs to know when I said, I will remember not to forget you, that I meant it. And you know what? It's funny. When I was a kid, my least favorite part of this movie was Kevin's relationship with Pigeon Lady. I thought it was boring. But of course, <laughs> obviously, I went on that two-hour-long rant about nihilism involving Kevin's relationship with Pigeon Lady, and that's my favorite part of the whole movie now And you know what, I shed a little tear there when they have a very special moment in the park to end the film where he gives her the turtle dove ornament. It's like really emotional. Yeah, it's good emotional storytelling. They, they introduce the turtle dove, talk about the significance and they hold on to it till the very end of the movie. I thought it was a pretty great scene. You know, I was getting teary eyed. It was beautiful.
0: It's a nice payoff. Yeah. And it's just beautifully shot and. You know, the scene out in the park and the nature there surrounding them and the pigeons flying off and she's right next to the lake and all that. And of course, you got to have the the final like funny line where the dad is yelling about the room service bill. Rob Schneider again comes to the door. Buzz gives him his chewed up gum and takes the bill and the dad is yelling out of the window of the skyscraper that. Kevin can somehow hear, you know, like a mile away or whatever, (laughs) and starts running through the park and, you know, running away now. That's the end of the movie. So again, mirroring the first movie where Buzz is yelling about Kevin, what did you do to my room? So (laughs) another beat that's just stolen directly from the first movie, but completely works here and is really memorable.
1: Yeah, for sure, man. I I think it is. And you get the Williams music, which again is akin to things we've said about this film where he uses all those awesome themes from the first film, but then he introduces some new things. You have a theme for the Plaza Hotel. You have a whimsical theme for the Duncan's Toy Chest for the toy store. And then you have a really haunting Christmas star, which it plays whenever Kevin is looking off across the void and thinking about his mother, and she's thinking about him. So you get this awesome music to end the film. And damn it, I should mention this. If anyone, anyone has a copy of the Varese Saravande or of the La La Land version of the Home Alone 2 soundtrack that has the full soundtrack and you want to send it to me, DM us. Send us some kind of message. I want it so badly. It's like $300 used. All the soundtracks for this are out of print. The original soundtrack doesn't even include the full performance of Christmas Star That's like $40, but I can't buy it because I know that it's flawed. I want one of the real ones. I want to keep buying the soundtrack for every movie we cover, but I can't do it for this movie. And I love this score. It's killing me, man.
0: Ah, man. And I would say this movie and all the magical, sentimental elements that we're talking about would not work or not be on the level that it is without the John Williams score. I definitely think that is what is just connecting all these pieces together. It's uh, it's a brilliant score. It's really fun. Uh, and not even, I wouldn't say fun, but it's just really well done. And it really sells that Christmas spirit of the original and this movie. I think it's just two that go hand in hand.
1: Yes, I agree, man. And I feel like this movie is pretty well edited. And it's edited by Roger Gosnell, who directed Home Alone 3. I feel like it's a bummer that he didn't absorb some of the filmmaking elements here outside of the editing that he did, because they're not present in Home Alone 3 at all. But then again, you don't have the John Williams score either. Like That's a pretty big hole to have to climb out of there.
0: Would you yell at this man, You blew it!
1: (laughs) Most definitely. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, what's
0: your score rating for Home Alone 2? This gets us
1: really high 7 out of 10 for me.
0: Nice, nice. Okay, so I figured your score would be a little higher... Then mine, this being just like a favorite of yours. You have a lot of nostalgia for it. Gave it a three out of five. So still really enjoyed this. Still really strong. Like you said, wouldn't call this like a great film by any means, but just all the nostalgia, all the Christmas whimsy about it. I was definitely surprised by the sweetness here and a lot of those elements to it. And I don't know, like, it's interesting watching this as an, as an adult where the booby trap stuff as a kid is what you love is what you go for is like what you're waiting for the whole movie as a kid. And here I'm like, I don't know. Maybe if you didn't even have that, I would like this even more, you know, like if it was just that sentimental whimsy Christmas spirit all throughout. And there is more of like realism and danger in those, in that third act with the bandits, like, I don't know. I might think this is like a four out of five instead, but alas, like you said, it doesn't really stray from the tone that it's going for throughout. It is a little wacky and and goofy, and it's early '90s to the core for sure. So, gotta love it for that.
1: Yes, and as far as uh connecting it to previous '90s movie that we just covered, my connection is the most obvious one, and it's that we just covered can't hardly wait. Which the writer director said was heavily heavily influenced by John Hughes movies and who wrote and produced these movies, but John Hughes himself, the yeah. writer and producer of Home Alone two Lost in New York and the original Home Alone and somehow Home Alone three I don't know what the hell happened there John <laughs> right, I don't know right. what I, I don't know what you were doing Do you have another connection
0: Yeah, my connection was the child actor stars. Um, so you've got Macaulay Culkin. And this got Charlie Cosmo in Can't Hardly Wait. So just like Culkin, Cosmo retired from acting at a young age, got out of the, the business, and then he went on to act later in Can't Hardly Wait. You know, he was much older at that point. And like we said, Culkin retired in 94, came back to acting later as well. So a little connection there between the two. And um, I argued at the beginning that, you know, Cosmo and Hook or what about Bob or, you know, as a child actor in general, would give Culkin a run for his money. I'd say that's true. I'd say that's fair. I think they're probably the two child actors from the early 90s that I would say are like at the top. What do you feel about them comparing?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great comparison because they're both good when they were younger, at playing the these kids who were probably a little smarter than a kid would be, but are believable at in doing that. Yeah, and they both kind of have that snark, but they're they're different at the same time. But I I feel like yeah, those are the probably my two favorites. So I'm with you.
0: All right, well that brings us next to the trivia battle. Hold it! Ah. Ah. Pop quiz, hot shot.
1: Oh, I'm so excited about this battle because you just watched breakdown where J.T. Walsh is the villain. You know, he played a lot Mm. of villains. And I I know you love that movie and you enjoyed it a lot. And I thought, that's weird because we're covering Home Alone 2 and Kevin's dad in this movie and the first movie is played by John Hurd. And Jordan, Mm -hmm. in the 90s, I could never tell J.T. Walsh and John Hurd apart. I always thought they were the same person. I could not tell (laughs) them apart, man. Like When I was watching Breakdown, I was like, damn, the dad from Home Alone is evil. But it's not him, it's J.T. Walsh.
0: I don't see the similarity or the resemblance there. I don't know. I guess Home Alone Dad is so distinct, and J.T. Walsh just has like a totally different vibe or look, even, so...
1: I googled that, and it seems no one else thinks that but me. So I (laughs) thought, well, then this should be really easy for Jordan. And this was before I knew that you had won the previous (laughs) trivia battle. So I was trying to like go easy on you, since you know, generally you you lose basically ninety nine percent of the time. So I thought, how about we play JT or John? Because Jordan should crush this.
0: (laughs) All right, all right. So for my questions, I went. Full-on Nick, where I choose an actor from the movie that we're watching and ask questions about that actor, and I chose Joe Pesci. Oh, cool. Testing you on your Pesci knowledge here.
1: All right. Well, since I set mine up first, I'll go first here. All right. 1993's John Grisham adaptation, The Pelican Brief. Who starred in this, JT or John?
0: Hmm. Was it John?
1: It was John. You got it, buddy. John Hurd is in the Pelican Brief. J.T. Walsh is not.
0: All right. All right. Question number one for Joe Pesci trivia. Pesci has been nominated for multiple Oscars. I know you love your your Oscar trivia, Nick. And he's won for only one film, though. What film is it? Is it A, Raging Bull, B, Goodfellas, C, my cousin Vinny, D, the Irishman, or E, Home Alone 2.
1: <laughs> it's gotta be Home Alone 2, right? It's gotta be, I mean,
0: you know, I didn't wanna I don't wanna be too much of a dick and throw that in there because that's you know such an obvious answer that it could be Home Alone 2, but those are your choices. I don't know.
1: I mean Marissa Tomei got the my cousin Vinny when it can't be that. I'm just gonna guess uh good fellas.
0: And good guess it is, that's correct. That was his one oscar win he was also nominated for raging bull and irishman
1: it might be crazy to say this i think his performance in raging bull is better but i feel like the academy is like oh you think you did a good job with that well f you uh (laughs) be in another movie where you might not even be as good and i guess we'll we'll give you that one
0: that sounds about right for the oscars (laughs) (laughs) Uh, this is fun his entire acceptance speech was it's my privilege thank you it's like one of the shortest speeches ever given. That was the whole speech. Sounds like Pesci. Yeah, when he's asked why he didn't say more, he said, I really didn't think I was going to win.
1: <laughs> Wait, he did all that in Raging Bull, and they didn't give him anything. So right, I, I mean, I would
0: agree. I would think his performance in Raging Bull is, is better and probably stands out more, but I don't know.
1: All right, JC. JT or John? eight's Snake Eyes.
0: It's got to be JT. Oh, no! Oh, it's, john. Ah, it's john it's john it's okay. john okay i haven't seen that in quite a bit just feels like a, a schmarmy movie and jt is a schmarmy guy so I yeah that's true so pesci has appeared together with robert de niro in seven films which of these films was he not in a mean streets b once upon a time in america c a bronx tale or D, the Good Shepherd.
1: I feel like it's either Mean Streets or a Bronxdale. I'm just going to go with uh, Bronxdale.
0: Ah, uh, you should have gone the other way. It was Mean uh, Streets.
1: Should have followed my instincts. Yeah. I didn't remember him in Mean Streets.
0: Yeah, he's not in that. Didn't act with Scorsese or De Niro until later.
1: All right. JT or John. 1993's In the Line of Fire.
0: It's got to be JT. It's John! John! Oh my gosh! Are these all just going to be John? <laughs> oh, man. Ugh. Again, it it feels like a harder-nosed movie that would have had somebody like JT, but...
1: I just remember John Hurd in that one very specifically.
0: John Hurd, to me, is a guy that can blend in a little bit more, whereas JT can, I don't know, steal the show. I, I, don't know, I can't see John Hurd ever... Like, stealing the show. You know what I mean?
1: John Malkovich steals the show in In the Line of Fire, so...
0: Yeah. I've actually never seen that, so... (laughs) That's easy for me to miss. Next question. Daniel Stern and Joe Pesci were in one movie together other than the Home Alone movies. And what movie was it? A. Bushwhacked. B. One Trick Pony. C. I'm dancing as fast as I can or D mace me.
1: (laughs) I have no idea.
0: Bushwhacked. Nope. It was I'm dancing as fast as I can from 1982.
1: Oh, that's a real movie.
0: That's a real movie, which I had never heard of before. But you would think Bushwhacked because apparently originally Bushwhacked was going to be like a spinoff of Marv's character from Home Alone. Because it's basically like kind of like a crook who then gets saddled with like a group of kids at like a a camp or something. Yeah, no, no pesci there. I'm dancing as fast as I can. It's a true story about Emmy winning documentary filmmaker Barbara Gordon's Valium Addiction and her desperate attempt to kick the habit.
1: Okay. All right. So there you go. (laughs) Sounds about right. Let's see if we can knock this thing out. JT or John. 1982's Cat
0: People. 1982's Cat People. It's gotta be JT.
1: No, oh, it's John! It's uh. John! of always John? You haven't seen Cat People, have you? No, uh, I haven't seen Cat People. It's it's John. He's pretty memorable in that, too. Damn. Okay. Damn. Damn. Alright, All right. All right. what you got? Alright, so in
0: 1992, Pesci was in four films total, plus an episode of Tales from the Crypt. Films including Home Alone 2, My Cousin Vinny, and Lethal Weapon 3, all in the same year. It's crazy. What was the fourth film he was in? Was it A, The Public Eye, B, A Bronx Tale, C, The Super, D, Betsy's Wedding, or E,
1: Frisier 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 He's so good at doing that.
0: Yeah, he's so good.
1: Well, he's in multiple of these movies. The trick is which which ones from '92, right? Right. I'll just say the public guy. <laughs> you got it, you
0: son of a gun.
1: What <laughs> year was the super then? Fresh, 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 fresh. Um, '91,
0: I think. Yeah, you're. It was really close.
1: Dang you trickster! Okay, well, look. Let me just J.T. or John you the last one for fun. You've got to get this one. A Few Good Men from 1992. You good
0: men. JT or John? John? JT! <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. I just no. figured every everyone has been John so far. It has to be John. Ugh. John Hurd. The natural
1: order of things has been restored, and I am quite sad about that.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I sucked at the JT or John, but Ugh. thank you for changing up the format, at least.
1: You're welcome. Well, look, this is one of two Christmas movies we're covering before the year ends, ideally. Uh, Nothing crazy happens, and we we all make it to the end of 2022. And it's your pick, Jordan. What are we covering as the main movie next episode?
0: So, this is a big one for me. I don't know how you feel about this. I don't know if you've seen this. I imagine you probably have. This is going to be quite the Christmas movie from 1999. We're going to be watching Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut.
1: Oh, I haven't seen this. I haven't seen this since the Encore channel. (laughs) It's been a long time.
0: You have seen it.
1: I left the room for a little while and then came back. So this, I've never seen the entire film.
0: I have not seen but clips of this. I've never seen this. So this will be a totally fresh watch for me. Definitely feel like I always kind of avoided it growing up just because of, I don't know, the conservative home <laughs> that I grew up in, the, you know, it's an erotic mystery, psychological drama. There was a lot of, I don't know if you call it controversy, but just kind of like tabloid talk around this, you know, around its release. And I feel like the general public, or at least like the South Louisiana public that I, uh, I was around at the time when this re- was released was just kind of like, oh, I gasp. you know, like, uh, like kind of creepy, crazy sexual movies, <laughs> you know, Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. But I mean, it's freaking Kubrick been going through a lot of his movies this year, with the film series that I've been doing at work at the library where I work, uh, watched a lot of his early stuff, feel like. Yeah, I need to cap off this year watching his last movie from 99 that I've never seen that uh, I feel like, like many of his movies, was released to mixed reviews, to disappointing reviews, and over time has really has gained traction and has come to be seen as more of a classic or a masterpiece in his filmography. But I know you're not a huge Kubrick fan.
1: I am not. Yeah. That's uh, probably my most controversial movie vibe. That I, I'm I'm not a big Kubrick fan. There are a couple of his films that I I think are perfect and are among my favorites. And then there are a lot of his films that I just don't click with. I just don't yeah. click with at all. I've written yeah. a long form piece on this before,
0: so I think it'll be it'll be fun to dive into that and to kind of discuss our relationship with Kubrick and his other movies. Obviously, uh, a huge uh, left turn from something like Home Alone Two, getting diving into probably. Some more serious waters and things, uh, more analytical criticism here. But yeah, I think it'll be an interesting ride.
1: Then I think since we're watching a Nicole Kidman flick, that Mm. will pair perfectly with 1983's BMX Bandits.
0: Ooh, I like it. I like it. (laughs) And I just love that film shake in true fashion is going to be putting a film like Eyes Wide Shut. Together with something like BMX bandits.
1: I feel like the absurdity is too good to pass up.
0: Just it's just too good. Yeah. It's it's just the natural fit, really, you know. Right. A high flying ride to adventure. And then you've got what, like orgy cult sex weird stuff.
1: <laughs> I feel like I remember this being a pretty fun movie. And hey, you know, we just did Home Alone 2 with the uh, wet slash sticky bandits. How about some BMX bandits?
0: Oh, there you go. That'll be an easy movie connection. (laughs) Nice.
1: (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, only on Film Shake in the month of December will you hear an episode focused on both Eyes Wide Shut from 1999, as well as the punishment film 1983's BMX Bandits.
0: Hmm, An Australian crime comedy action film. (laughs) <laughs> starring Nicole Kidman. Oh, directed by Bar- Brian Trenchard-Smith.
1: Well, here's why this is also a kindness, Jordan. He also directed Leprechaun 4 and Night of the Demons, too.
0: That's right. That's what. That's where he's coming up. That's right. Good deal. And we talked about Dead End Drive-In from 86, one of Tarantino's favorites, apparently. So, yeah, this is uh, just bringing it full circle to Night of the Demons.
1: Yes, right Good on. Good stuff. Only Film Shake can do this. Only on film shake or a two hour episode on home alone Two. only film shake can do this.
0: That's right. Only place you're going to get this kind of content.
1: 40 minute rant about nihilism and home alone Two. only film shake.
0: That's right. Well, I'm very excited about this. I hope everybody will check out both of these movies and just enjoy the synergy between the two of them with us. (laughs) Come back and listen to the next episode. So thank you everybody for listening. We hope that you will follow us on twitter at 90s movies pod reach out to us there send us a dm tell us what 90s movies you're enjoying what you'd like to hear on the show you can also email us at filmshakepodcast at gmail.com follow us on patreon you can subscribe to our patreon and get bonus content We'll be talking about other 90s movies non-90s movies there might be doing some top 5 90s list there at some point coming up. So bonus episodes each month and you also get early access to our main episodes. So $3 a month you get that. Go to patreon.com/filmshake. As always, catch you next time for more Filmshake.
1: Take it easy.
0: the neck <laughs> off. you right,
1: ready to clap? Let me do oh this. wait, you're inhaling.
0: Yeah. I didn't inhale. <laughs>
1: I swear I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Lewinsky.
0: Or that inhaler. <laughs> Alright. <laughs> Okay, all right, clapping now.